Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crime Vine podcast. Okay, so I have a lot of explaining to do, like a lot. So basically, if you're a new listener here, this was an existing ongoing podcast, keyword being was. Well, we're back or I'm back because it's literally just me and this microphone. That's it. But I'm back. So Okay, let's let me explain myself here. So basically what happened was my best friend and I were going to start a podcast and well, how it actually started was she was going to be my co-host on this podcast and like I was not liking the direction that this podcast was going at all. I hated it. Like I honestly was not proud of my work. I wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm a podcast host. Like here, go listen to my podcast. I was like, oh my gosh, please don't listen to that. You know what I mean? Like I just was not proud of it. I didn't put as much effort into it as I had held myself to the standard of and what the outcome that I was expecting. Like you guys, you're only going to get what you put into it. You're not going to get anything more than that. And I kind of lost focus focus on that. And I mean, it's so hard. I'm working full time. I'm a full time college student. Like I'm, I'm not trying to create excuses here, but it was really time to find time. It was really time. It was really hard to find time to research these cases. And I wasn't doing as extensive research on each case that I had wanted to do. So like, that's not saying I didn't do enough research. I I got you the basic information, but that's all I got you. I didn't put set myself apart from the other podcasts. Like I just gave you the basics and kind of talked about it. Well, For this, I am not going to be posting weekly like I was because I don't think with posting weekly, I don't think I was giving myself enough time in order to like create the best possible episode that I with what I have right now and my um, accesses, I I wasn't like I want to be able to put out the best podcast. So not the best podcast. Okay, let me like preface that like not the best podcast but like an enjoyable tolerable one so I so basically my friend and I we were gonna do that and then she wanted to do conspiracy theories which I'm all up for you guys know I love a good conspiracy theory like that's how it is and so then it kind of changed and we couldn't figure out a name for the life of us. So we were thinking months and like not months weeks and we literally could not pick out a damn name and then it turned into like, oh, let's just do like a two best friends bullshitting podcast. And I was like, I'm I'm game. Like, let's do it. That sounds like fun. And basically be at everything like relationships and awkward Tinder dates and like sex and like stuff like that. I was like, yeah, let's do that. I'm totally down. And then like it just I don't know what's going on. Like it's not happening. Like I created the Instagram. Some of you, if you guys are coming from my Instagram, some of you guys already know because I like posted like, hey, we're changing directions. Like, ah, go follow it but like, I'm not doing anything with that right now. So I don't know if that podcast is going to happen. I am waiting on her. Like she's supposed to be doing the art and she still has not come back to me with the art. And I've sent her so many ideas. Like it's just so hard because I'm such a go-getter, I feel like. And I'm like, I want to do this and I want it done now and I want it to be done and happen. And like, that's just how I am. Like I spend all my free time that I can find working on stuff. And I'm just such like that. This is what I enjoy to doing. Like 
I want to work on it. And it's just like someone that doesn't have the same passion as you. It's just really, really hard to find time and all that stuff. And I just like, I realized like you can't rely on other people for your own success and happiness. You got to do it yourself. So moral of the story, like I'm back. I, you guys know I love true crime. Like I like doing this podcast. I shouldn't say like, I love, I love doing this podcast because like true crime's not just a thing that you can talk about on the streets with anybody. Like you start talking about a good juicy true crime case and people are looking at you like, what the fuck you crazy person like why do you research that shit like stuff like that like I've seen I can't openly talk about this stuff at work you guys because they all look at me like I'm about to murder them which I know how to but I won't like because that's just messed up I just like find interest in it's not the serial killers I like it's like the psychology like what the fuck are they thinking what would possess somebody to do this shit and like this is the only way I can really talk about it and not think people think I'm a crazy person because like all of you guys like true crime. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Right. So I like that. And I also want to say one more thing. I'm sorry this is turning on to ramble. But like if you've made it this far, we're going to get into the case like any second now, I, I promise. But basically, OK, so I if you were looking for a like audiobook style podcast where you get the story and nothing more, nothing less. You just get the story with some creepy, somber music in the background. That's not what you're going to get here. And if that's what you're looking for, I just want to like warn you, like that's not what's going to happen here. This is like a real conversation podcast. And yes, it may only be me, but I'm fucking crazy. And I have like a bunch of different like personalities. That's like the ongoing joke. And so I can like be my host and my co-host and you know, we be good. This podcast be good. So that's just how it is here. I'm too much of a crazy person. Like my personality, like not like an actual legit crazy person, but my personality is more like energetic, fun, upbeat. Like that's just who I am. And I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. So just throwing that out there. And I feel like that's what kind of sets me apart from other people. But anyway, so I'm like in my basement recording and like something's moving my storage room and I'm getting really freaked out. But anyway, so I, that's just not, you're not going to get like an audiobook style here, like reading. You're going to get me talking and then me stopping and giving my opinion so you have time to process the information I just gave you. That's how we're going to do things here. If you don't like that, not everybody likes that, then I'm just warning you, this is not your po- the podcast for you. But if you like that, sit down, grab yourself a drink, because this vine will rope you in. All right, so we are going to be talking about the case of Richard Chase. If you are not familiar with Richard Chase, you're about to be. He is known as the Vampire of Sacramento, and I'm going to tell you why. This case is so unbelievably crazy, you guys. Like, I can't, I can't make this shit up. Like, I'm just throwing that out there. And I'm going to put a disclaimer out there is that if you don't like anything like gory or like, not that you're actually going to be visualizing it, but there may be visualizations that pop in your head. So warning you, this stuff is very gruesome and letting you know if you are listening to this and there's children around, I would advise you not to listen to this right now or put in some headphones just because it is very gruesome information. And so Richard Chase, he was an American serial killer who killed six people in this span of a month in California. And he earned the nickname the Vampire of Sacramento because he drank the blood of his victims and he ate their internal organs. What? 
He did this as a part of a delusion that he needed to prevent Nazis from turning his blood into powder via poison that they had planted beneath his soap dish. He was born in 1950 and he was raised in a very strict household and he was often beaten by his father. And in his teens, he became an alcoholic and also developed a penchant for killing and mutilating animals and fire starting and all common traits that basically serial killers have in their youth years that kind of make people a little suspicious. And in high school, he had a handful of girlfriends as well, none of whom he was able to maintain a steady relationship with, partly due to the fact that he was not able to maintain an erection or even get one for the matter of fact. And because of this inability to become aroused in the presence of females, Upon consulting a psychiatrist, Chase was told that the root of his problems was either repressed rage or mental illness. So Chase did not seek any further treatment after this diagnosis, and it would later be determined that Chase had an aversion to conventional sex and could only achieve arousal and orgasms through violent or disturbed acts such as killing animals and necrophilia. So as an adult, Chase moved back in with his mother, where he began to accuse her of attempting to murder him by poisoning him. And Chase's father purchased an apartment for him and forced him to move out of the house because they were like, this is crazy. Like, we don't want to deal with this anymore. So alone in his new apartment, Chase began to capture and kill and disembowel various animals, which he would then eat raw. He began to put the entrails of the animals he had killed into a blender in order to make smoothies. And then he reasoned that by drinking these smoothies, he was preventing his heart from shrinking. And he feared that if it shrank too much, it would disappear and then he would die. This isn't some cocktail, like, okay, animal organs and blood and all that stuff is not part of some cocktail that you just mix up in a smoothie, drink it, and then go for your workout. Like, that's just not, that's not a breakfast. That's not a nutritional, like, that's just weird. This is not a cocktail that you just drink, buddy. Like, and I know during these cases, like, people do weird fucking shit, but like, (laughs) that's just so Weird. So in 1975, Chase was involuntarily committed to a mental institution after being taken to a hospital for blood poisoning. Now, how did he get this blood poisoning? He contracted it after injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. Yep, you heard it. Into his veins. Like it was heroin or something. Interesting. So Chase escaped from the hospital and went home to his mother and he was apprehended and sent to an institution for the criminally insane where he often shared with the staff fantasies about killing rabbits. Poor innocent little rabbits. He was once found with blood smeared around his mouth and hospital staff discovered that he had captured two birds through the bars on his bedroom windows and snapped their necks and then sucked their blood out. 
Among themselves, the staffs began referring to him as Dracula. So after undergoing a battery of treatments involving psychotropic drugs, Chase was deemed no longer a danger to society. And in 1976, he was released back to his parents. Now, his mother deciding that her son did not need to be on the anti-schizophrenic medication that he had been prescribed, she weaned him off of it. So his parents put him up in an apartment where he began to capture, torture to death, and then drink the blood of rabbits, dogs, and cats. And on occasion, he killed and ate neighbor's pets and at least once contacted the neighbor by telephone to explain what he had done. Like, can you, okay, can you imagine getting a call and be like, oh, hey, Janet, like, I just killed your dog and ate it and then drank the blood and mixed it with my smoothie. I hope you're okay with that. Just want to let you know that Scruff isn't going to be coming home anytime soon. <laughs> what? I don't... What? What? Like, okay, can you imagine getting that phone call and being like, uh, like, this guy is literally nuts. I think I'd be terrified if I got that phone call. I'd be like, oh, shit, like, I'm next. <laughs> like, I just can't. Okay, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't be joking about that, but I just, that's just, okay. So, so at this time, he developed a fascination for firearms, and he purchased several handguns with which he practiced obsessively and he became fascinated by the crimes of the hillside strangler he also believed that the strangler was also the victim of the nazi ufo conspiracy that he believed he was the victim of so chase also began to lose interest in caring for himself he neglected personal hygiene such as like bathing grooming and brushing his teeth and he stopped eating and dropped to the fairly meager weight of 145 pounds. So one day in 1977, Chase rang his mother's doorbell and greeted her by thrusting a dead cat in her face. He then threw the cat to the ground, knelt down, ripped its stomach open with his bare hands, and stuck his hands inside the cat, smearing its blood all over his face while screaming. So his mother calmly returned inside the house and did not report the incident to anyone. Okay, I understand that she's his mother, but if my child came to me and did that, I'd be like, um, uh, maybe she just didn't like think much of it because like she was, I mean, his parents were abusive. Now, I don't know if she was abusive, but the father clearly was very abusive. And some of these tendencies were, I mean, this is abuse. Like he saw that abuse was normal in his household and has obviously developed to some extent with that. So I don't know if she was just kind of like, oh, <laughs> Richard, you just being you got the neighbor's cat again. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know. Like, I just kind of would have been a little creeped out if my child did that. But I mean, maybe she's not normal. I don't really know um, what role his mother played in all this. So on August 3rd, 1977, Nevada State Police discovered Chase's Ford Rancho lodged in a sand drift near Pyramid Lake, Nevada. Inside were two rifles, a pile of clothes, a bucket full of blood, and a cow's liver. 
The officers tracked down Chase, who was naked and screaming in the sand, soaked from head to toe in blood. And when he was questioned, he claimed that the blood was his own and that it had leaked out of him through his flesh. Like, like a sponge, like his flesh was a sponge and like his blood just came out. So on December 27th, 1977, Chase fired a handgun into the home of a Sacramento woman and a police search for the woman's home found the slug in her kitchen and no one was harmed, luckily. Well, just two days later, on December 29th, Chase killed his first victim in a drive-by shooting in an apparent uh, quote-unquote warm-up for the crimes he planned on committing. Now, the victim was Ambrose Griffin, who was a 51-year-old engineer and a father of two, who was helping his wife bring groceries into their home. One of Griffin's son reported seeking a neighbor walking around their East Sacramento neighborhood with a 22 rifle earlier that week. Now, the neighbor's rifle was seized, but ballistics tests were determined that it was not the murder weapon. However, it was determined that the 22 used to kill Ambrose Griffin was the same one to used to fire the bullet into the kitchen of the Sacramento woman two days before. Now, on January 11th, 1978, Chase asked his neighbor for a cigarette and then forcibly restrained her until she gave him an entire pack. Now, two weeks later, he attempted to enter the home of another woman, but finding that her doors were locked, went into her backyard and walked away. Chase later told detectives that he looked at locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome, but that unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. Can you imagine, like, having that, that mind process of, like, oh, like your door's unlocked, which basically you're basically saying like, yes, come on, come inside, have a drink, kill me, then, you know, rape my body. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I just don't, that's a crazy mindset. And honestly, like during this time, like, I mean, I wasn't alive during this time, but during this time, I understood that it's very, from what I understand, it was very common to not lock doors like that. It was just, it was a different world then. And now everyone, of course, locks like everything, car doors, like literally everything. But from what I understand of everything, it's not, it was times were different and not everybody locked doors. So can you imagine like accidentally forgetting not to lock your door one night? And then that's the night that he tried getting into your house and then whoops, you're dead. You know what I mean? Like I could not, that's so scary to me. So anyway, while wandering around, he encountered a girl named Nancy Holden with whom he attended high school with, and he attempted to get a ride from her, but frightened by his appearance, she refused and was like, no, we're not doing this. I'm not doing this today. So he went down the street where he broke into the home of a young married couple, stole some of their valuables, urinated into a drawer of their infant's clothing and defecated on their son's bed. You know, normal, I guess. The couple came home while Chase was still in the house. The husband attacked him, but Chase escaped. So Chase continued to attempt to enter homes until he came across the home of David and Teresa Wallen. David was at work and Teresa, who was three months pregnant at the time, was in the middle of taking out the garbage and thus had left her front door unlocked. Now, Chase surprised her in the home and shot her three times, once in the hand and twice in the head, which obviously ended up killing her. And it was the same gun used to kill Ambrose Griffin. So Chase then dragged her body into her bedroom and raped it post-mortem while repeatedly stabbing it with a butcher knife. And 
When he had finished, he carved her corpse open and removed several of her internal organs using a bucket to collect the blood and then taking it in the bathroom to bathe in it. And then he then sliced off her nipple, drank her blood and using an empty yogurt container as a drinking glass before leaving, he went into the yard, found a pile of dog feces and returned to stuff it into the corpse's mouth and throat a scary world out there like huge wake-up call to everybody you know what i mean like it just it is such a weird world and to think that this was in 1978 can you imagine our world has gotten so much crazier like if you thought crazies were out then like crazies are totally out now like it's insane like i just it's it's insane i just i try to understand the psychology behind it and at the same time it's like i don't know if anybody could really understand that without you know like going insane like it's honestly it's it's insane so on january 23rd 1978 two days after killing Teresa wallen chase purchased two puppies from a neighbor which he then killed and drank the blood of leaving the bodies on the neighbor's front lawn and on january 27th Chase committed his final murder, which also qualifies as a mass murder. He entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Marath, who was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, David. Also present in the home was Evelyn's six-year-old son, Jason, and Dan Meredith, who was a neighbor who had come over to check on Evelyn. Evelyn was in her bath while Dan watched the children, and he went into the front hallway when Chase entered the home. And he shot him in the head at point blank range with his 22 handgun, killing him. Again, this was the same gun that killed Teresa Wallen and Ambrose Griffin. Now, Chase then turned the corpse over and stole Dan's wallet and car keys. And Jason ran to his mother's bedroom where Chase fatally shot him twice in the head at point blank range. On the way to killing Jason, Chase also shot David in the head. That... I just want to cry right now. <laughs> like you would think that I, I just have such a weak spot for children. And just to think like when a child cries on TV, I cry. Like I just, I love kids and I have such a weak spot for them that I just, okay, let alone killing somebody, I could never, but to kill a child, like how could you live with yourself and not feel remorseful and not, how could you look in the child's eyes, see terror and and still commit the act like even not not even just a child just anybody how can you look at them in the eyes and be like no like I'm still gonna kill you like how I just I can't fathom that it's just honestly it's it's crazy and it just like breaks my heart because they were children like they had their entire life 22 months old and six years old they had their entire lives ahead of them and this guy just took that away from them literally just ripped it right out and played god so Chase then entered the bathroom and fatally shot Evelyn once in the head and he dragged her corpse onto the bed where he simultaneously sodomized her and drank her blood from a series of slices to the back of the neck. Medical examiners reported an inordinate amount of semen in the corpse rectum indicating an unusual amount of ejaculations. So he, that's where the necrophilia plays in. He stubbed her half a dozen times in the anus, the knife penetrating her uterus. He stabbed her in a series of vital points on the body, which caused blood from her internal organs to to pool into her abdomen, which he then sliced open and drained into a bucket. 
He then consumed all of her blood. Chase went to the went to retrieve David's corpse, and he took it to the bathroom and split his skull open in the bathtub and consumed some of his brain matter. Outside, a six-year-old girl with whom Jason Maroth had a play date knocked on the door, which obviously startled Chase. He fled the residence, stealing Dan Meredith's car, and the girl alerted a neighbor. So the neighbor broke into the Maroth home where he discovered the bodies and contacted the authorities. So upon entering the home, police discovered that Chase had left perfect handprints and perfect imprints of the soles of his shoes in Evelyn's blood. Meanwhile, Chase took David's corpse home with him, finally disposing of David's corpse at a nearby church. Okay, so after the Wallen murder, FBI agents Russ Vorpagel, I think is how you pronounce his name, and Robert Ressler were called in to investigate, and they compiled a profile of the killer. They determined that the killer would be tall, malnourished, a loner, physically unclean, and that most importantly, he would continue to kill. So five days after the mass murder and after hearing the FBI profile, Nancy Holden contacted police saying that she believed Richard Chase could be the killer. So the police ran a background check on Chase where they came across his registration of a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. And detectives and a team of police went to Chase's apartment where they asked to speak with him. And Chase refused. So the detectives and the police hid down the hallway and waited for Chase to leave arresting him when he left the apartment carrying a bloodstained box. His parka and shoes were likewise bloodstained. So inside were pieces of shredded blood-soaked wallpaper and the blood-stained 22 with which he had committed his murders. Chase claimed that the bloody wallpaper and bloody gun were a result of his killing several dogs and when the police performed a search of Chase's personal person, they found that he was carrying Dan Meredith's wallet. So when detectives searched Chase's apartment, they found the walls, floor, ceiling, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating and drinking utensils soaked in blood. On the counter was the blender Chase used to make his so-called uh, smoothies. It was caked in coagulated blood and the rotting matter of internal organs. Inside the refrigerator, police found several animal body parts wrapped in aluminum foil. David's brains in a Tupperware container and pieces of his body wrapped in saran wrap and several of Evelyn Moroth and Teresa Wallen's internal organs. On another counter were several pet collars, and on his kitchen table, he had spread out numerous diagrams depicting various aspects of human biology. So in 1979, Chase stood trial on six counts of murder. In order to avoid the death penalty, the defense tried to have Chase found guilty of second-degree murder instead, which res results in a life sentence. So their case hinged on Chase's history of mental illness and the lack of planning in his crimes. Evidence that they were not premeditated. I'm just going to pause right there. I understand that defense attorneys, like it is their job to get their client off. But how, I guess it's a, a question of morality. How can you hear what he has done and still further to agree and work with him and help him get off. Like, I just don't, 
I don't I don't know. Like I guess it is a question of morality. I really don't understand how you can hear what this person has done and these crimes that he has committed and to the extent he has gone with them and be like, let's settle for a life sentence instead. Like clearly you agree he has done something wrong. Okay. I'm sorry, I say like a lot. <laughs> okay. So on May 8th, the jury found Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder. So the defense asked for a clemency hearing in which a judge determined that Chase was not legally insane. Chase was sentenced to die in the gas chamber. And uh, waiting to die, Chase became a feared presence in prison. And the other inmates actually tried convincing him to commit suicide because they were too afraid to get close enough to him to kill him themselves. And Chase also granted a series of interviews with Robert Ressler during which he spoke of his fears of Nazis and UFOs claiming that although he had killed, it was not his fault that he had been forced to kill to keep himself alive, which he believed any person would do. He asked them for a radar gun with which he could apprehend the Nazi UFOs so that the Nazis could stand trial for the murders. He also handed Ressler a large amount of macaroni and cheese, which he had been hoarding in his pants pocket, believing that the prison officials were in league with the Nazis and attempting to kill him. And on December 26, 1980, a guard doing cell checks found Chase lying awkwardly on his bed, not breathing. And an autopsy determined that Chase committed suicide with an overdose of prison doctor prescribed antidepressants that he had been saving up for the last few weeks. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the case of the vampire of Sacramento. It's honestly so incredibly crazy to me. This case is filled with so... this case has I guess it's the perfect case to get back into my podcasting gear it it has so much to it and it's so like gruesome and it's I mean he this guy literally was literally insane like he he was crazy I mean he believed that the Nazis had you of Nazi aliens were <laughs> were controlling him and that they were telling him to do the commit these murders like he couldn't clearly take responsibility for his actions which i just okay denial and like he was like no let's put the nazis on trial like dude (laughs) this isn't nazi germany like this is like this is literally sacramento california United States not Germany it's just honestly there's so much like this is crazy I want to know what you guys think of this case what have you heard this story before you listened this story I shouldn't say story this is a case have you heard this case before you listened to today's episode or is this the first time you're hearing of it what do you guys think I want you to head over to my Instagram account the crime vine and tell me what you guys think. Now, I'm not sure if I'm going to change my Instagram name back to the Crime Vine Podcast. So either if you can't find it under the Crime Vine, search the Crime Vine Podcast. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do yet. Just letting you guys know both ways. But 
tell me, head over there, send me a direct message or comment on one of my latest Instagram posts and tell me what you guys think of this case. I honestly think it's absolutely crazy. Like, as you guys he heard my opinions throughout this case, it is insane. Like, I have a lot of opinions about this, obviously. Um, I want to know what you guys think. And if I'm alone and thinking this is all, like, literally fucked up or if you guys agree with me I'm hoping you guys agree with me also I did want to mention that they made a movie about Richard Chase in 1992 and it was called unspeakable now this was based on Chase as a model for the killers all right guys so as usual I'm saying this like I'm assuming all of you guys are resuming back from my Instagram but if you guys are new here welcome or I guess I should have said that earlier but you guys know the drill. Head over to my Instagram or you can email me at thecrimevinepodcast at gmail.com. Send me cases that you guys want to hear next. I love doing cases on what you guys want to hear. After all, you guys are the consumers of this content and I want to put out what you guys want to hear. So head over to my Instagram, comment on any of my posts, what you want to hear or send me a DM or email me. That is it for today. My name is Felicity Brooke. This is the Crime Vine Podcast and I will talk to you guys in the next episode. Oh,